I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we discuss more innovations in the time of COVID-19, plus an update on EU export restrictions, and Tariff Man's Gonna Tariff Man. You'll hear all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, The Trade Guys, still quarantined, Still at home, still in Bethesda, but still rocking. Guys, welcome. Let's talk about some good news. Let's talk about the innovation that is coming out of the pandemic with uh, regard to companies. What's happening in the innovative world, guys? Well, everybody is uh, is doing what they do best as Americans, which is to improvise and overcome. And uh, it's true around the world as well. And last last week, I paid tribute to the to the global health researchers who are getting getting to the bottom of this new disease and and finding treatments and and ways to manage it uh, at such an astonishing pace. Um, it's happening all over uh, with many many corporations now. You have. Uh, uh, from like True Value Hardware Company, which which repositioned its paint division to make hand sanitizer. So this is happening everywhere. The, one of my favorite stories is, uh, you know, it turns out there's huge demand for this personal protective equipment, the so-called PPE, masks, gloves, wipes, all those kinds of things. Well, those are made, those aren't paper products. Those are actually made, what's called a non-woven material. And the basic uh, uh, raw material is is polypropylene. It's a, it's a type of plastic that's used to, to make all the N95 masks, all the, the hospital gowns, the disposable wipes, everything else. So non-wovens is the business, but you can only make enough as many non-wovens as you have if you have polypropylene. Well, polypropylene suppliers are in huge demand, and there's a co- small company in, in Pennsylvania that moved to round-the-clock operations by improvising their production schedule. Essentially, they took what was a plant designed to produce uh, X quantity of polypropylene and produced 2X or 3X their normal quantity by essentially running the place as an offshore oil platform with, with workers uh, putting trailers in the parking lot, letting people sleep and work and, and then have, lo- have very long shifts of a week or so, much like you do as an, in an offshore oil rig instead of an eight-hour shift and go home. So there's an improvisation in not just the products, but also the way people work that I that I find absolutely exciting, uh, and it gives you hope for recovery. Let me be the uh, in a small way the voice of doom. Uh, on, on, on <laughs> we all knew this. that was coming. Well, you know, it's sort of my role in life. To uh, everything is not uh, as great as Scott says it is. I mean, what is great is is the innovative spirit that that story reflects, and it's one of the great things about America that. For 200 years, we've been able to rise to the occasion and and produce people who do that, you know, and think of those ideas, and they are able to get people to follow them and and accomplish great things. And that's also because we have a market system that is enabling for that. That guy didn't need permission to do all that. He went out and did it. Right. And that gets, you know, more rapid change more quickly. As, once again, a commercial, my column this week 
points out that it also, though, creates uh, problems that, that always show up in this situation. Uh, when you get a demand uh, spike, and this is interesting because right now we, we have a demand trough for almost everything except uh, medical equipment and, and pharmaceuticals. And when you get a demand spike, what you get is new entrants into the marketplace or uh, old entrants figuring out ways to make more stuff. And it's the new entrants that are always kind of interesting because uh, oftentimes they're, you know, like GM and Ford deciding to make ventilators. You know, they're competent, high-tech companies who know what they're doing and presumably will turn out competent products. But not always. You know, what happens, you, you get other effects. You get crooks and scam artists. The most obvious will people are people who, you know, don't make anything but advertise that they've got something. Will take your money uh, and disappear, and then reappear later with a different name and a different address. You've got other people who will make shoddy products, and we've had some cases of these, often imports, but but not always, uh, or products that have not been tested and certified and and qualified. And in the medical area, that's rather important. So you get quality issues, uh, you get scam issues, you get price gouging issues from unscrupulous companies that will make more of a product and sell it for three or four or ten times the going rate because they know there are buyers out there that are panicking and want to have it at any price. So that goes along with the market. You know, this is nothing new. This has been going on for thousands of years. But it, it's a reminder that uh, there's a role for government in all this. You know, and, and part of the role for the government is to get out of the way and let entrepreneurs and creative people do exactly what Scott was just describing. But the other role for government is to watch all this stuff very closely and, you know, maintain a regulatory function so that you can step in and deal with uh, the crooks and the unsafe products and the price gouging. Look, I agree with Bill, uh, particularly about uh, health-regulated products. Uh, the FDA is a tough uh, taskmaster, but they have a great record of consumer safety, patient safety, which is uh, at the utmost value at this point. I would take issue with the notion of the price mechanism. Uh, and here's where, uh, for, for me, I spent enough time in my, in my life before CSIS and the commodities business to know that high prices lead to low prices. When prices go up, it's a signal for people to make more of it or to find substitutes both of which ultimately lead to low prices. And plus, we, we, nobody really knows what's, a, what's price gouging. I don't know. Well, it's as if someone knows what the price ought to be. Well, I would just ask you or our audience, what's the price of a barrel of oil? Ten years ago, it was $100. This morning, it's up to $14.50. And you could have had any price in between and at some point in time in the last 10 years. What's the value of an airline ticket? It's a round trip to Chicago. Well, I have seen that fare offered for about $1,000 round trip, D.C. to Chicago. Uh, last week, we checked on it, and there was a ticket for $39. $39? Yes, on Spirit. So this is the way markets work, okay? So there's a, there's a signal in there. The $39 says that there is too much supply chasing too little demand. In what gets described as price gouging, what you have is the reverse. You have not enough supply chasing too much demand, and ultimately... There are some things that I'd like high prices for. For instance, given we've dumped a couple trillion dollars on top of the economy just to keep it from stalling out, I'd pay a lot for a vaccine uh, for for COVID nineteen. I think I think <laughs> I think we all would. Yeah. Right? So so there are th some things that are actually worth paying for. Well, what about testing? I mean, 
we're the most innovative country in the history of the world. Why can't we innovate on testing and get these tests out? My answer would be, I think we are. I think there's dramatic innovation in the testing space, given that we are only four months from knowing the genomic sequence of this thing and therefore being able to know what to test for. So I think there's, there's an amazing progress. That's one where we just like it a lot faster than it's happening. And like any field of innovation, not every step is a positive one. There's trial and error, there are mistakes, there are things that we think will work and don't. And we, we're just working on a, an astonishingly compressed time schedule because of the immense threat that this thing poses. I mean, but Governor Larry Hogan of the amazingly great state of Maryland, which we all reside in, um, had to make a deal with South Korea to get 500,000 tests. Uh, I'm sure that was the right thing to do for the, for the governor at the moment. Yeah, I can't resist interrupting and saying, which he was able to do, by the way, because of his wife, who is, lo and behold, an immigrant. Yep, you know, she's Korean. Exactly the people that Trump doesn't want to let into the country. Uh, you know, these are the people well, that are going to save us. Well, which is which is also why trade is important, okay? Is that those, yes. if South Korea had tests available, that's a good thing, okay, that helped the governor in his decision-making. And it's actually a, highlights a problem in many other pieces of medical equipment and supplies which are being subjected to export restraints. Had South Korea prevented the export of those test kits, the governor couldn't have done what he thought was best for the state. Okay, but here's the problem. As of the census of 2017, there's six and a half million people who live in Maryland, and we only have 500,000 tests. Well, uh, it is, uh, it's a risk management uh, uh, proposition that we're all going to face for the next uh, several months until we really understand the depth and breadth of this contagion and how to manage it. Like I said, th there's a way to scale up and test everybody. You know, we may have one of these in our home, or we may not even worry about it. Okay, so uh, nobody knows how this is going to come out. I think we'll find out. Well, it, it's also, it's a, it's a complicated set of supply chain issues, too, because yes. you not only need the test kits, uh, you know, somebody's got to read them and evaluate them, and that requires chemical reagents and, you know, other, you know, pieces little, of stuff. Little pipettes, little, uh, little swaps. Yeah, and so all those things have to be pushed, factored into the supply chain, too, and there's a huge demand for them. The other factor that, that if you want to think about it a little bit longer term, is a variation of something that Scott said a few minutes ago, which is, you know, what we all learn in first grade, which is what goes up must come down. And so people are ramping up production significantly to meet overwhelming demand for these products. At some point, that demand is going to uh, recede and go back down to normal yes. levels. What happens then? Now, in Scott's example, you know, the guy who's bringing in the oil, you know, the offshore oil strategy and bringing in trailers so people can live on site and, you know, and, and do round the clock shifts. Uh, that problem is relatively simple. <laughs> you know, we can give back the trailers and everybody can go home. Uh, right. And go back to normal production. Go back to normal yeah. production. But if you are a company that just got into this business because you saw an opportunity and have ramped up and started producing it, what happens when all of a sudden demand goes back to normal? Where are you at that point? Uh, and what are you going to do? Yeah, I think we're going to see ventilators for sale on eBay starting at like 99 cents. Well, exactly. I'd buy a ventilator for 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, who wouldn't, right? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> well, here's another thing, though, that I wanted to ask you guys. Okay, so Georgia and some other states are starting to open up a little bit. In Georgia... Uh, today and in the days to come, they're going to go bowling. 
So here's the thing about Georgia going bowling. If Georgia really wants to have football season, as I know they do, why are they going bowling now? I kind of think that, bo- that, that football season is a little bit more important to people in Georgia. Why wouldn't they hold off a little bit, you know, to bowl? It's not football season yet. We got a few months. Why wouldn't they hold off a little while with the bowling? Well, look, here's the upside of that. I'm, I'm not going to second guess the governor of Georgia. But what I will say is we have 50 governors plus, plus many other jurisdictions who are dealing with this problem, who, who have closed the, the, certain sections of the economy and now need to reopen them. And we're going to have a lot of experiments being run. Some of them won't work, okay? But I don't think any of us can say right at the moment what won't work. Uh, however, I hope what we'll do quickly is first learn from each other. There are states like Maryland, which are staying closed. Georgia's reopening. We're going to compare notes. Second, I hope we get out of the idea that there are essential and non-essential activities in the economy. Uh, because what we're doing is driving a divide. Because if I read the numbers right, about half of us are still working and getting paid, and the other half aren't. And if you have a job, had a job, okay, and are preventing from doing it uh, uh, by uh, by an action of, of the government, you won't. You don't think of your job as non-essential. All right. Sure. All right. And and even if you own bowling alleys. You employ people. You're you're engaged in it's a it's a it's a, an entertainment and hospitality service. You're a contributor to both the tax base of the local economy. You provide entertainment for people. You provide jobs. That's a not a non-essential service. Now and it's essential to you and your family. That's exactly right. And so I think we'll get working together when we stop separating us out in, into what's essential and non-essential. There were lots of activities that probably could reopen. Uh, I would put health services. I think the idea that we have postponed. Uh, elective surgeries at all our hospitals. The many doctors' offices are closed. Yeah, how about uh, just going to the dentist? Closed. Yeah. Uh, so th- those kinds of things. Uh, I I would trust the doctors to know how to reopen safely and how to treat patients safely. I don't really need an intermediary there. So, uh, but uh, but the the beauty of the United States and and its federal federal system and the fact that police powers are at the state level, not the federal level, for the most part, is we'll run a lot of experiments and some of them will go wrong. Uh, for different reasons, and, and uh, I hope we learn from it. Yeah, but they don't go wrong uh, without consequences. So I am. Oh gonna, no, the, uh, con- the consequences are both sides. Yes. And I'm, so I am going to uh, second guess the governor of Georgia since he, since he did what he did over the objections of I think the mayors of the three biggest cities in the state, which is where the crowds are. Uh, you know, if the consequence of what he does is another flare up of the virus, that's not only going to set Georgia back, it's going to set everybody else back because it's going to make everybody else say, well, wait a minute, we better watch and wait and see what's going to happen. It's just going to prolong the difficulty and prolong the recovery. Let me ask you guys this, and this is a hypothetical, but it might be interesting to play it out for a minute. What if China invents a vaccine before we do. What happens? It, uh, well, certainly it's not a hypothetical in as much as it is a, is a possibility. That could, that could happen. If you look at who, where the people are in the world who do top-level medical research, they're, believe me, they're not all in the United States. <laughs> and so, right. so, so it's entirely possible that could happen. And uh, I think what our regulators would do is examine it and determine whether it is uh, safe and effective and if it is, uh, try to find a way to implement it here. I think what the Chinese would do 
in that situation is recognize the, the positive public relations boost they can get out of it, as they've been trying to do already, and make it generally available um, for a profit, of course. But uh, I, I don't think they're going to hoard it. So, you know, more power to anybody yeah. who can come up with the answer. Yeah, I don't think anybody in Europe was concerned that Jonas Salk was an American when he invented and demonstrated success with the first polio vaccine. Polio was a, was a great killer uh, of, a, of a previous era. And uh, Salk's vaccine uh, was the beginning of a solution to that very persistent problem. So I, I just I think we'd appreciate a cure and look for ways to adapt to it, to our own lives. There's a lot of anger between the United States and China going on right now, though. And do you see that getting in the way of us either accepting or fast tracking or believing China? Do you see China holding back or holding it over our head? Do you see those scenarios? I don't think it's in their interest to do that. We've talked about China a lot in, in past episodes, and my view is that I think the, the, the relationship is not good, as you say, and it's deteriorating uh, for a lot of reasons. But the main reason it's deteriorating is because of the policies that the Chinese are pursuing, not the policies that we're pursuing. But I think that's going to continue. It's going to continue as long as Xi Jinping is there. So it's going to be a fraught relationship. That said, when you get into lives being at stake and get into medical issues— uh, I don't think it's in their interest to, you know, not to share whatever innovations they come up with. And it's not in our interest uh, either not to share or, or to refuse to deal with them. It's in both our interests. If the Chinese have a, a vaccine or some other medical innovation, uh, it's very much in our interest to, to, you know, bring it here and try to use it here. And I think the president would be criticized if he didn't. Okay, shifting topics a bit. What is going on with EU export restrictions? Well, it depends on what day it is. Uh, you know, so, there, well, first, there's a lot of export restrictions out there, not just Europe, but Europe, there's some policy movement. Well, some days, you know, Commissioner Hogan has said different things at different times. Uh, in his general message has been, we need to get rid of export restrictions uh, for the good of everybody. They're not healthy. Uh, they retard recovery and they create shortages and spot shortages and spot surpluses. And, and he's right about all that. Uh, I think he's focused more on also trying to preserve the single market inside of Europe. So when he talks about limiting r restrictions, uh, he's a little bit more focused on restrictions between the French and the Germans or the Germans and the Italians than he is between the EU and the United States. But it's the w same. Within what we used to call the single market. Yeah. yeah right. Well, I still call it the single market. I just think it's at, at risk. But on, you know, more recently, he suggested that uh, – uh, not just suggested, said that they need to extend the export restrictions on masks for an additional 30 days. So he's kind of uh, contradicting himself, which is not unusual under the circumstances. This is the kind of thing that happens when, uh, you know, when people are in a state of panic and you've got, you've got shortages. I mean, the answer is not to do what he did. <laughs> You know, the answer is to let the system work and let people uh, import products and also export products. And if you look at two-way trade, including in masks, in the United States v. China, that's what was happening. That's what was happening in January and February to the advantage of both. Ultimately, export restraints tend to be self-defeating uh, because they usually generate a reaction by the other side, what the so-called uh, tit-for-tat or, or beggar-thy-neighbor policies, which tend to harm both parties in the end. And... Uh, 
So they tend to feel good to politicians, but they ultimately, they can make, easily make products worse. Usually they, they, they wind up creating the excess capacity that Bill discussed a few minutes ago, uh, just, just because we didn't allow markets to function and, and our, our, our trading relationships to be sustained the way they had in a non-crisis period. So it's a, it's a measure that always comes up in a panic, and uh, the faster we can unwind them, I think overall the better off we'll be. Finally, guys, I want to ask you about tariff relief. Um, President Trump on Sunday signed an executive order allowing deferral of payments to some tariffs, but the move doesn't extend to importers of goods caught up in several trade conflicts, uh, things like solar panels, steel, aluminum, and a range of Chinese products. Kudlow talked to reporters on Monday, and he said the decisions would be made on a hardship basis, resulting in tens of billions of dollars of relief for some affected firms, but he underscored that the U.S. tariff policies targeted at China, Europe, and others remained in place. What's happening here? Is this real movement, or what is this? I think they gave in to some growing, uh, partially and grudgingly gave in to growing pressure from the business community, who, point, who points out that particularly in, in selected sectors, the medical sector is the classic example. Why are you charging tariffs when we desperately need all this stuff, you're just making it more expensive for people who don't have any money, you know, and aren't making any money. And I think they got the message, the president being, you know, tariff man, as he has regularly said, was unwilling to get rid of the tariffs that he imposed as an instrument of, of his trade policy. You know, the ones they're suspending, and I shouldn't say get rid of because they didn't get rid of them. They just suspended payment temporarily. I mean, the ones they're getting rid of are the normal, most favored nation tariffs that we charge everybody and have been doing for years. The ones he kept are the China ones, the steel, like the ones you mentioned, the steel and aluminum ones. Um, the business community, of course, was not satisfied with that and would like to get have him get rid of all of them. Uh, I would draw a bit of a distinction between the tariffs that were put in place not by his decision, but by U.S. law in responding to dumping and subsidization, which are basically these are tariffs that are intended to offset the harm that's being done to American manufacturers. I'm not troubled by keeping those because the consequence of not keeping them would be to resume the harm that's being done to the American producers. And those are all WTO consistent, as are the safeguard actions. Uh, the China steel and aluminum tariffs that we've discussed in the past, you know, they're instruments of Trump's trade policy, uh, and they have all the flaws that go along with that. Well, look, Bill, Bill covered it well. It's uh, tariff man's going to tariff man, so we're, we're there. But I just wanted to point out that some of how absurd it gets, which is yesterday the Senate agreed to dump a, many, many bucks, which were basically either printing or borrowing from our children, to uh, hospitals. The, the hospitals will use that money to buy equipment, which the government is going to charge tariffs on and therefore make it more expensive. That same thing is going to happen when the, when the federal government rebuilds its stockpiles of masks and PPE and other things like that, uh, which were depleted. They will need to be replenished. Uh, the federal government will charge itself tariffs, and we as taxpayers get to pay uh, money to take money out of one pocket and put it in the other. So uh, yes, unlike well, what Trump welcome is to the saying, joy. the Chinese are not paying the tariffs. No, finally he, he did, tariff man did admit that the Chinese are not paying those tariffs. So it's at least that's one benefit. Gentlemen, as always, a pleasure to talk to you, even virtually. 
stay safe, stay healthy, and, and we and will come talk out of the again. bunker once in a while. It's sunny outside. Uh, it's beautiful <laughs> out today. Time to walk uh, the I dog. I may go stretch my legs right about now. Guys, thanks a million. Uh, we will talk again next week. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.